Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up this morning to Isaiah chapter 53. Back when we, uh, when I was looking at doing Isaiah and the various chapters that we would be covering, I had actually spent a little bit of time thinking that I might bypass 53 because typically it's a chapter that gets used around resurrection time, right? But as I looked at it and did a little research and study into it, I thought, you know, this is so good and it, it, it is worthy of being used again and referred to again, shared again, because it is reminders to us that we need to hear all the time, right? Okay. So this chapter really is the very heart of the second half of Isaiah. Remember that there, Isaiah is in two halves. Chapter 1 through 39 is the first half. Chapters 40 through 66 being the second half. And this 53rd chapter really is at the heart of the second section. Did you realize, do you know that Isaiah 53 is actually quoted approximately or somewhere around 85 times in the New Testament? Isn't that something? 85 times it is mentioned to and referred to in the New Testament. And in this passage, detailing the coming ministry of the Messiah, Isaiah, paints a portrait of Jesus that is unlike that which um, most artists produce. So this 53rd chapter obviously not only takes us to the cross of Christ, but also takes us beyond it. And I'll explain that in a minute. But this portrait that Isaiah paints for us, very much unlike a lot of the paintings that we have seen by the various artists through the, through the years. Um, Typically, we've all seen pictures of Jesus, and, you know, he's, he's attractive and handsome and, and looks pretty nice, right? In fact, we've even seen other pictures where there's halos around him that would cause him to stand out amongst all men. Last night, I didn't bring it with me, but, you know, we have K-cups, like for the Keurig coffee, and we have that as well down there like we do here, and and I happened to notice that somebody had brought in a box of K-cups that on it it just said Joe. You're like, we refer to coffee as Joe. We need a cup, cup of Joe. But then underneath Joe were th- these words, tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> and I thought, that is so like our culture. We're into that sort of thing, right? We, we so much don't, do not get past the surface. We, 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 we get stuck there on the surface. Often Jesus is pictured, portrayed as possessing, as I just said, exceptional handsomeness, having features like the halo that cause him to stand out. Yet Isaiah says that when he came, there would be no special attractiveness about him. Nothing about his outward appearance that would cause him to be considered, as we would typically think, attractable. He didn't come across when he was here as someone whom Hollywood would chase after. 
and put into movies, that sort of thing. There is, however, an old saying that all of us are aware of. We all know this old saying. You can't judge a book by its cover. This was certainly the case with Jesus. And it is what I meant when I said a moment ago that this chapter not only takes us to the cross, but also beyond. It was not what people saw outwardly, but what they could not see inwardly that made him extraordinary. And that's what we want to center on today. Here in Isaiah, Jesus is pictured as one who has, what one writer says, concealed his heavenly fame in an earthly frame. Jesus was willing to come and live in this world in poverty, and he was willing to surround himself with common people, and not only that, but with sinners, right? So that his real beauty could then be seen. The shallow thinking, the Hollywood-minded, the twisted values crowd who do not see beyond the surface might not consider such a man worthy of our love or our devotion or our worship. However, with Jesus, his real beauty doesn't lie in what, we can, be, what can be seen outwardly, but in what he has done. It is in the things which Jesus accomplished for you and for me that his true beauty, his real attractiveness exists. So dismiss from your mind every artist's rendering on Jesus that you have ever seen. And this might be even a little bit harder. All of those of, all of, those of you, does that sound right? <laughs> Who have really locked into the chosen movies, you're going to even have to remove that face. <laughs> How many of you sometimes when you're praying and thinking about Jesus see Jonathan Rumi? <laughs> We're going we're gonna to do our best to even remove that from our minds this morning as we look and see who he really is inwardly, getting beyond the surface, okay? Um, we, we want to do that. So look instead to who he inwardly was and what he, what he came to do and what he did do in fulfilling his mission. For it is in the work of Jesus that his real, and I want you to catch this, and I just, this phrase just, popped into my head this past week that we really can see the loveliness of his holiness amen the loveliness of his holiness and by the way before we go a step further i want to remind every single one of us that what is to be said and what we're going to look at in looking at Jesus and considering the loveliness of his holiness is exactly to be the case when people see you and me. Are you, are you with me? Yeah. Are we not? How many times have you heard me say, display Jesus? Let's reflect him. Let's be changed and become more like the image of God's son. The loveliness of his holiness in the transformation that God is wanting to do in and through our lives. You on board with that? So let's keep that in mind as we work through this this morning, okay? Let's go to verse 1, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We see here already the beginning of what we're gonna, what's being unfolded is his inward appearance. There are those who actually say, you've come across them. The message of the gospel is just too unbelievable. That it's too good to be true. They think that there must be more to being saved than simply believing in Jesus and believing that he died for our sins, rose again, and wants to live within us. Too unbelievable. But that is exactly what the gospel message is. Amen? It's exactly what it is and why it is such good news. I think it would be a safe assumption on my part that to believe that you are here today because you do believe the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That you, you do believe in the good news. Your life has been changed by the arm of the Lord as we've just read here, which is a reference, Isaiah's way of saying that God, our God, is mighty to save the arm of the Lord. You've been affected by that. Your life has been impacted by that. You know it to be true. It is partially why you are here today. And not only that, but because Isaiah 53 is part of that group of chapters in Isaiah that are referred to and known as the Song of the Suffering Servant. This is another one of them. Because you believe in the good news, because your life has been impacted by the arm of the Lord, that the song of the suffering servant continues to ring as a melody in your heart. I want you to think about that. Is that the case with you this morning as you sit here? Does the song of the suffering servant, all that he came to do and accomplish for you and me at the cross, does that song continue to ring as a wonderful melody in your heart, expressing itself in your gratefulness and your thankfulness and in your desire for more and more of him. Verse 2 and 3. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Verse 2 provides the message or some translations use the term report that we find in verse 1, who has believed our message or who has believed our report. Verse 2 provides what that report is of the one who is coming. So tender-hearted is Jesus that even as he was dying on the cross, he looked down and saw his mother, right? Sees his mother with John. The Apostle John, in the midst of unbelievable suffering and pain, folks, try to imagine that as best as you can. In the midst of that unbelievable suffering and pain, so tender is Christ's heart that he says to his mother, 
Behold your son. He says to John, Behold your mother. Why? Just again in his tenderness, making sure that his mother will be taken care of. Now, I find this to be extremely interesting. You want to know why? Because as we all know, Jesus has brothers. That maybe at this time aren't all that cool with who he is. We know that they weren't, right? There is a part in Scripture where we read where they came to get him because they thought he was kind of lost his head. We do know that later on, his brother Jude, his brother James come around, in fact, become gospel writers or writers of the New Testament letters. But at this point, I find it interesting that he says to his disciple John, I want you to take care of my mom. Now, that is an added tenderness that we see in his heart. I want you to imagine that at that moment you are John. And the one who is on that cross, suffering the pain that he suffered, speaks to you and says, even though I'm basically reading between the lines, even though I've got brothers, John, I'm giving you the responsibility. I'm charging you with the care of my mother. Can you imagine what that would have done to John's heart? If you were him, what would that have said to you? Such tenderness, such compassion that we find in the heart of our Lord. Spiritually speaking, the people of Israel had received no word from God, experienced no miracles, had no prophecies for 400 years. In other words, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were 400 years of complete silence. Okay? In fact, listen to what Jeremiah writes in chapter 2, verse 13. The Lord said, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, they'd forsaken God and the water that he provided, the living water that Jesus would speak of, and they went looking for their own sources of life and nutrition, if you would allow in that kind of way. But broken ones, worthless ones, really. If you're all dried up inside, because, could be because you've forsaken the living water to draw from the cistern of, instead of in place of the cistern of occupational success or maybe materialistic pursuits or even in relationships. We eventually find that it doesn't hold water. Some of you know this already by experience to be true, that it's a broken cistern, that it does not refresh like you hoped it would do, did not bring anything that you thought it would bring. As most of you know, our bodies are made up of 80% fluid. Stop drinking and watch what happens <laughs> to our bodies, right? Coherent thoughts vanish. Skin grows clammy, and we're even told that vital organs wrinkle. Deprive your heart of spiritual water, 
And your dehydrated heart will begin to send desperate messages that will result in things like hopelessness and loneliness and resentment. So where does one go to find water for your soul? Well, if you're in a dry place, ever been in a dry place? Consider the tender one. The Lord Jesus who comes in dry times to those who will thirst for more. For those that want something that truly will satisfy. For that which will not be a broken cistern, but a complete one that brings life everlasting. Jesus told us in John 7, verses 37, 38, a verse that we refer to every now and then here. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me. Let them come to me, not to the whatever out there that so many tend to go to. Let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. Church, is that water flowing through you these days? Verse 3 lets us know that Jesus was the despised and rejected one. But how thankful are we that that did not deter him one bit? Are you thankful for that? The people expected the son of David, a descendant of the great king, is who they were looking for who would free the people of Israel from all of its oppressors and turn around and make it one of the greatest nations that this world has ever known. That's where their thoughts were. That's what they were looking for. The people expected the Messiah to come in great power and majesty. But when the Messiah did come to the earth, when he did come on the scene, we typically right here, most preachers will say, he didn't come as the conqueror and the prince and majesty like they were looking for. But I want to say he did come as the conqueror, as the victorious one, as the prince of peace. Only not in the way that they expected. But he did come as the conqueror. Amen. Conquered death. Conquered the grave. Also that you and I could have life eternal. Sins forgiven. Instead, the Messiah entered the world as the baby in totally unexpected, totally undesirable circumstances. And because of that, because they couldn't get past the surface, they missed it. And unfortunately, far too many continue to miss it today. The unbelief of Israel is clearly, clearly being made known to us in these first three verses. They saw him, they heard him, but would not put their trust in him. There was a threefold rejection that we see here. They rejected his words, the message or the report from verse 1. They rejected the arm of the Lord, the fact that he was indeed mighty to save. We see also in verse 1 and his person meaning his appearance, verses 2 and 3. And this, again, continues to happen today. 
verses 4 and 5 now. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We see here that Jesus was the afflicted one. God punishes his son. Of course, a punishment that was ours, right? Not his. The father, how it must have hurt the father. How it must have pained him to pour out upon his son all of the righteous indignation and justifiable wrath for all of the chaos, all of the rebellion, all of the self-centeredness, all of the sinfulness throughout history, knowing all the while that his son was innocent of all that he was taking upon him. Yet he did it. Why? So that you and I could go free. Jesus was also the suffering one. He was pierced. He was wounded for our transgressions. I came across something that I, I, I thought was pretty interesting. Doctors tell us there are five types of wounds. There is a contusion which Jesus received when men punched him in the face. There is a laceration, which he received when the whip stripped the skin off of his back and shoulders. There is penetration, which he received when a crown of thorns was pressed into his forehead. There is perforation, which he received when the spikes pierced his hands and feet, causing his body to wreath in spasms. And finally, there is incision, which he received when a soldier stuck his spear into his side. I want you to notice, did you notice the progression that we see in verses 4 through 5? The Lord was stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded so that we could be healed what it says remember now that this prophecy was given more than 700 years before before Christ came on the scene okay 700 years yet I want you to note the guarantee that God gives this concerning the coming of the Messiah concerning his fulfilling his mission Here's what I'm referring to. Although he was speaking about a future event 700 years out into the future, did you notice that he speaks in the past tense? Was, was, was. As though the event had already taken place. Being omniscient and eternal, God naturally saw into the future, 
Therefore, he could speak in the past tense, guaranteeing <laughs> that his prophecy would be fulfilled. His servant, the Savior, would definitely come, and he would indeed pay the ultimate penalty for our sins. I like what one writer has said. We are sinners, both by choice and by nature. Simply stated, Christ died for all our transgressions, for our sinful nature as well as for the sins we choose to commit day by day by day. Verse 6 and 7 now. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's likened to the broken cisterns that we go after instead of what Christ offers, the living water. We've turned, gone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Here we find Jesus portrayed as the sin-bearing one. In, jo in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we, we read that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire whole world. What a shock that must have been. Here, the one who had never sinned, here, the one who knew nothing about sin experientially, suddenly took on all of the sin that had ever been committed by everyone who has ever lived. I came across something else that was I considered quite interesting. <clears throat> it said, the best estimates are that there are 77 billion people who have lived on this planet. I don't know how they come up with that number. I don't know how accurate that is, but I think if we got locked into that, we would be missing the point. <laughs> point is, we know that there's been a whole lot of people that have walked this earth, amen, since day one, since Adam and Eve be it 77 billion or 107 billion, I don't know. There's been a lot of people. The point being is this, that Jesus absorbed all of the sin of all of those billions and billions of people. Wow. <laughs> and it included yours and mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you? I want to make sure you understand the full weight of that. In other words, he wasn't just providing fire insurance. He wasn't just making sure that you and I would escape the fires of hell. He was putting in place that which would enable us to allow our hearts to be on fire for him in terms of purity and righteousness and holiness and displaying him the loveliness of his holiness. 
How's your heart this morning? Cold? Warm? Lukewarm? On fire for God? You see, my dear brothers and sisters, that which God has done for us and which we see within his inward appearance is what we would call amazing grace. Such amazing grace. Jesus was the silent one. It says he did not open his mouth. His enemies questioned him, provoked him, falsely accused him once again, yet did not open his mouth to defend himself. He could have called down thousands of angels, couldn't he? He could have done that with orders to destroy his accusers right there on the spot, just vaporize them. <laughs> but he didn't. He remained silent so that he could secure our salvation. But isn't it interesting, through all of the mock trial and all of those questionings and inquiries, and even while he's being beaten, he doesn't speak a word. But when he's there hanging on the cross, it is then that he speaks. And what does he speak? Father, forgive him. And to the criminal at his side, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He speaks. Are you hearing those words? Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Jesus, we see here, was the condemned one. And no one, no one ever spoke up for him. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. We realize that his disciples at this point had completely abandoned him. But there was nobody in the area, nobody that was around, dared step forward to speak up for him, to defend him. Not one. Have you ever thought of that? And it is probably safe to assume that there wasn't a single person in Jerusalem, in that surrounding area, who even remotely understood what was truly happening in those moments at Calvary. Probably no one. Jesus absorbed their blows until his face was marred more than any man. And he did it for you and me. Look at verse 9 with me now. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We see here that Jesus is the honest and sincere one. Definitely not to be considered amongst the wicked, right? Verse 9 could actually read like this. And they appointed his grave with the wicked, yet he was with a rich man in his death. 
his enemies could find no fault in him. The thief dying beside him recognized that he had done nothing wrong. And so sure of his innocence was Joseph of Arimathea, probably considered a wealthy person at the time, so sure of his innocence, Joseph of Arimathea risked his standing in the community. If you're familiar with his story, he had been a secret follower of Jesus Christ. But at this point, he puts that all aside, risk being found out, and ordered to provide Jesus with a tomb purchased by him. In fact, based on John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, were it not for Nicodemus also, who partnered with Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' body may have been buried out in the, a potter's field or maybe even dumped onto a trash heap, a garbage heap. God had promised his son, as we see in John chapter 19, a grave in the garden, and that was exactly fulfilled. I don't know if you've been to Israel. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but that which they believe to be the tomb is referred to as the garden tomb. Don't know what it looked like 2,000 years ago, but you can go there today and it is referred to as the garden tomb. Verse 10, we find his reward. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We find here that Jesus is the submitted one. He knew he would be wounded. He knew that he would be crushed in order to bear the sin of all humanity. And yet he submitted willingly. As you all know, hours before his crucifixion, Knowing what was ahead, Jesus was in the garden praying, right? And so earnest and so, so intense was the prayer that he prayed. We read that he, he bled, he sweat drops of blood. That's pretty intense, I think, by anybody's standards, wouldn't you say? But what was he praying in that prayer during that time? Father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But nevertheless, I want you to put your name right in there with nevertheless, because it means you. Nevertheless, for put your name in that blank. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In Matthew 13, we see the story, a parable that Jesus told, a story of a merchant who had sold all that he had in order to purchase a particular field that had a particular pearl, right? So too, God gave all he had to purchase a pearl. You know who that pearl is? It is you. And it is me. It pleased the Father 
to crush the Son. It pleased the Son to submit to the Father. All because of you and me. Hopefully, even now at this point, you are hearing the voice of the Spirit of God saying to you, Oh God, forgive me for all those times I choose to do it my way. For all those times I ignore you. For all those times I choose my will, my pleasure over yours. Oh, what you have done for me in order that I might lay my life down as you laid your life down for me. I might have life and have it to the full. Verse 11 and 12. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In verse 11, Jesus is seen as the satisfied one. Was Jesus angry at what we put him through? <laughs> no. You and I, we would be, right? We'd be pretty, pretty upset, copying all kinds of attitudes. And can you just imagine? Jesus, uh-uh. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us it was for joy that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Of the two thieves crucified with him, one mocked and rejected and taunted him. The other, however, said, as you know, Lord, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. And even though he was, he was beaten and bruised beyond recognition, I believe even then the father allowed his son to see the first one who believed the first fruit, if you will, of his crucifixion labor of love, the criminal on the cross next to him. And there would be many more, including you. And finally, in verse 12, we find Jesus as the fruitful, effective one. Jesus received the spoils, the treasure of his sacrificial work on the cross. And in the Lord's eyes, we are his spoil. We are his treasure. Notice that he not only secured our salvation, but maintains it as our intercessor. Isn't that wonderful? The writer of Hebrews once again tells us in chapter 7, verse 25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. I like that, don't you? Aren't you pleased with the fact that Jesus even now is interceding for you? Wow. So therefore, he not only succeeded in securing our salvation, but he also continues to succeed as he works out our sanctification. 
In other words, Jesus will see you through all the way. The ups and downs, those times when you get out of bounds, <laughs> he will see you all the way until he receives you into glory. What a magnificent Savior we have. Amen. In dying on the cross, Jesus did what no other could do. He satisfied God's righteous demands for the payment of sin. In him, folks, there is forgiveness. Are you thankful? C.S. Lewis once said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something that they need to forgive. <laughs> Corey Ten Boom once said, Forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and to realize the prisoner was you. Wow. Psychiatrist Carl Menninger, author of Whatever Became of Sin, once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could leave the very next day. Ernest Hemingway wrote a story called The Capital of the World about a father and his teenage son. In the story, their relationship had become somewhat strained, and the teenage son had run away from home. His father began a journey in search of his rebellious son, finally in Madrid, Spain, in the story, in a last desperate attempt to find the boy. The father put an ad in the local newspaper, and the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The very next day, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness. They're all looking for the love of their fathers. We have so much to be thankful for. Because while the world may remember our sins, and while the devil may remember our sins, and while you may even remember others' sins, Jesus has forgiven and he has forgotten our sins they are forever gone and will never be remembered again in Christ we are clean we are pure and we are saved there is a book in the middle of the Bible called the Song of Solomon you probably don't spend much time reading in that book in fact, you might sit here thinking, when have I ever heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon? <laughs> doesn't happen very often. It is a story of love between a husband and a wife. And at one point in the book, the bride is describing her husband. She calls to mind attribute after attribute and in an effort to fully describe his attractiveness. Then... She finally exhausts all similes and metaphors and vocabulary and simply says in chapter 5, verse 16, He, 
is altogether lovely. Oh, church, that is to be exactly how we ought to see Jesus. Is he that to you today? All together lovely. His real attractiveness is not found in his physical appearance while he walked here on earth. It is not found in the wealth that he accumulated, not found in the people that he was most closely associated with. His loveliness, the loveliness of his holiness, his attractiveness is found simply in what he has done for us. The real beauty of Jesus is found in his great love and sacrifice for all of us. Agreed? May we be drawn closer to him. May our hearts be given more to him. May our thirst and our hunger increase for him so that those streams of living water would continue to flow and gush from us so that when others see us, they will see Jesus, the one who is all together lovely. Father, we come before you this morning and hopefully you have spoken. I always stand on the promise of your word that tells us your word will never come back empty or void, that it will produce its purpose that it was given. I stand on that promise now. And God, as I pray, and as we bring this service, to a, this service to a close, that, Lord, we have heard from you. And that as we leave, we'll not go out there and just fall right back into business as usual. But, God, that we definitely will be moved to a place where we will desire intentionally to be more like you, to display you, so that the world would see in us you who has we've been saying here at the end of this message the one who was all together lovely the tender one the compassionate one the one willing to sacrifice and submit to the father to fulfill the mission may that be our heart's desire to fulfill the calling and mission that you have placed on us to you be all the glory, not to us, but to you, God, be all the glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up